So I told, I told you guys last week that Kemp was uh, not going to be here this week, and here he is. So if you remember that, uh, Kemp had a little vacation scheduling snafu. He's here this week, gone the next two. So make sure you get your hugs and your, uh, any conversation you want to have with him. He'll be gone for two weeks with the family in a really cool location going south. So uh, get your hugs in with Pastor Coach this morning. Hey, um, if you remember uh, last week, uh, we talked about Uh, In the book of Ruth, chapter 1, we get a glimpse from how Ruth treats Naomi of what covenant relationship with God is like. And if you remember last week, uh, what we said was is that God is clingy. Remember? If you weren't here last week, you got to go back and listen to the podcast. Uh, God is clingy. Not a way that we typically describe God, but God is clingy in the best sense of the word. When he grabs a hold of someone in relationship, he does not let go. Ruth clings to Naomi in covenant relationship. But God isn't clingy to the point of being needy. That's why we don't like the word clingy, because we associate that with someone who is needy emotionally, right? But um, God himself is clingy, but in a giving, blessing, serving kind of a way. We called him clingy givey last week. Okay, now, um, regarding covenant relationship with God, uh, I had an Old Testament professor who I, I reference him quite a bit because he was very formative in my understanding of God in the scriptures and life and all things. He, he came into my life at a very powerful time and his teaching was like deep and resonant for me. And I remember a lot of what he said. And when, uh, when he was taking us through the Old Testament and he talked about how God chose Israel to be in this covenant relationship with him, he would, grain, like he would ingrain into our minds and our hearts that in covenant relationship, God gives three things. Are you guys ready for the three things that God gives in covenant relationship? Not just with ancient Israel, but with you and with me if we're in Jesus. Here's what God gives. First and foremost, and this is the best thing, he gives us his presence. He comes and he meets and he mingles with us. He is intimately related with us. He gives us his very presence. Number two, he gives us provision. He promises to provide for his people. We stay in covenant relationship with him. He says, I will continue to provide for you. And then the third thing is protection. Right Over and over again, God says to his people, hey, don't worry about the nations that are all around you and violent and raging so. God says, I will be your shield, I will be your defender. That's what God provides for his people in covenant relationship. One, his presence. Two, provision. Three, protection. Okay, so that's how God treats us. And regarding how we treat one another in relationship, right, it's best for us to take our cues from him. And so, in the relationship that we find ourselves in, whether it's marriage or your time with your grandchildren or with friends or whoever you're relating or in relationship with, it's good for us to take our cues from how God treats us so that we can extend that to the people in our lives. And so what we're going to look at in Ruth chapter 2 this morning is we're going to look and see right, another glimpse into covenant relationship here. We're going to see like how God treats us as we look at Ruth and a particular gentleman by the name of Boaz. Right? And we're going to learn a whole bunch of things, I believe, this morning in Ruth chapter 2. So you can turn there if you have your Bibles or if you have it on your phone, however you want to follow along. If not, I'm just going to read some verses here and you can just trust that I am reading it. But Ruth chapter 2, um, how do we take our cues from God regarding how we relate to one another? Ruth chapter 2 verse 2. Okay, Remember, um, Ruth is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Um, 
Naomi's husband died, their, um, her sons died, which was Ruth's husband, so they come back empty-handed from Moab to Israel, and they've got nothing here. But Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, where we pick up the story. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, right, recently after getting back into Israel, they left Moab, they're back in Israel. Here's what Ruth says to her mother-in-law. She says, let me go to the fields and glean or harvest, pick grain. Let me go to the fields and glean among the ears of grain after someone in whose sight I will find favor. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, go, my daughter. Okay, so um, Ruth and Naomi have come back from Moab and they have nothing. They're poor, they're destitute, they have come back, they have no land, they have no means of providing for themselves. And so when they come back to Israel, what they're doing now is they're entering into Israel's welfare system. But Israel's welfare system is very different than the one that you and I know of in our country in modern times. Here's what the welfare system looked like in Israel. It's an agrarian economy, meaning everyone is providing for themselves off of the very land that they own. There's some craftsmen, there's some people that have specialty jobs, but most everyone is deriving their income from the land. Right? But there are some people that for whatever reason, bad decisions, difficult times, they've lost their land, they have no means to provide for themselves. Here's how God has made provision in a welfare system. God commanded his people at harvest time, and it's harvest time here in Ruth chapter 2. He commands his people not to harvest all of the grain off of their land. Particularly like to leave the edges of the field unharvested so that those who are in need, the poor, right, the, the aliens, the orphans, the widows, those who do not have a means to supply their provisionary needs, Leave the edges of the field unharvested so that those people can then come and at harvest time they can do the work of harvesting their own provision. Right? And it's really cool how God did this. It, he actually, lots of reasons why God set up his welfare system this way. But Ruth and Naomi are entering into Israel's welfare system. Ruth says, let me go and glean in the fields. And Naomi says, Ruth, go get it. Thumbs up. Okay. Fast forward a little bit, and um, Ruth finds herself in the field of a guy by the name of Boaz, right? I don't think Ruth did this intentionally. She's just out looking for a place to harvest. She's harvesting in the fields, and now she happens to find herself in the land of, um, in the land of Boaz. Not the land of Boaz, but land that Boaz owns, right? She's become a gleaner in his fields, and then Boaz like, comes back from whatever he's doing one day and inquires with one of his workers and says, who's, who's that woman right there? I've never seen her before. And then here, here's where we're going to pick the story up, right? Boaz gets information about Ruth. And then Boaz goes in verse 8 and he meets Ruth personally for the first time. And this is what happens here. Ruth chapter 2 verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Hi, Ruth. Nice to meet you, right? That's all preliminary. And then, then Boaz said to Ruth, Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this field, but keep close to my young women. What is Boaz saying to Ruth here? Saying, Ruth, it's harvest time. There's lots of fields around here. You can see them as far as your eyes can see. There's fields of grain. 
Boaz says, Ruth, I don't want you to go into any of those other fields. Ruth, you stay here. Stay close to my women. Do not leave my property. Now, is Boaz being controlling and like weird? No, Boaz is not. He's being a generous gentleman. What he is doing is he's saying, Ruth, I have provision for you in this field. You need not go anywhere else. We got you covered, okay? Remember, covenant relationship, three things, presence, provision, protection. What is Boaz promising Ruth here? Provision. Now, verse 9, then he says this, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. It's my field, stay with them, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Okay, so Ruth here apparently may be an attractive young woman. And Boaz says, stay here in my field. Now, the reason number two, here's why, Ruth, you should stay here. Because I am offering you my protection. I have instructed my young men, don't you dare mess with Ruth. You mess with Ruth, you're messing with Boaz, right? Don't, don't even think about it, right? So Boaz offers her provision in this field. He's saying, Ruth, now you have my protection in this field field. Second half of verse 9. And, Boaz says, when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Drink water here. What's, what's that? That's provision. You get thirsty from all this work in the fields. Ruth, I've got water for you. Verse 10, Ruth is incredibly thankful. Fast forward to verse 14, right? Presence, provision, protection. We're seeing provision, we're seeing protection. Look at verse 14. And at mealtime, halfway through the day, Boaz says to Ruth, come here and eat some bread. Did Ruth bring that bread? No, Boaz is offering her bread from his own storehouse. That's provision. And Ruth, dip the bread into the wine. Provision. So Ruth sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain, provision, and she ate until she was satisfied, that's provision, and she had some left over, provision. When she rose again, Boaz instructed his young men, back to harvesting here, let's all get back to work, lunch is over, Boaz says to the young men, let Ruth glean even among the sheaves meaning the already harvested grain. That's, that's not what God instructed his people to have to do. The, Boaz is going above and beyond here with what? With provision. And do not reproach her. Also, Boaz says, as if that's not enough. Also, pull some out from the bundles that you've already harvested. You've already done the work to harvest some grain. Pull some of that out and drop it on the ground for her so that when she comes after you, she can just pick up that grain extra easy and have more. And he says, and do not rebuke her. Provision, provision, provision. And protection, protection, protection. Where? In my fields, Ruth, you will have provision and protection. Now, I said there's three things in covenant relationship, provision, protection. The last thing, the first and obviously foremost would be presence. Well, let's check that box in chapter 3 when Ruth and Boaz get married. We'll just, we'll just count that as the presence box 
for Boaz and Ruth. Can we do that? Right? There's an intimate connection there. So what is Ruth finding in relationship with Boaz? She's finding the three things that we find in covenant relationship with God. Presence, provision, and protection. And it is all right there screaming off the pages in chapter 2. And this is how God treats us. Boaz to Ruth is God to us. Now, as God treats us, so would he have us treat one another. To learn these lessons, to become right, who he is in relationship with him, and then to extend this to other people. Provision, protection, and also presence. So, Ruth chapter 2, there's two things that we cannot miss. If we miss one of these things, how we treat people will veer off course into not good directions. Two things we have to learn. Number one is this, is that God is for us. In the way that Boaz is for Ruth. Don't go anywhere else, Ruth. I got everything you need right here. Don't go anywhere else, Ruth. I've got all the protection you need right here. Ruth, I will give you my very presence in this place. God is for us in the way Boaz is for Ruth. All right, and we've seen that in everything that we've read in Ruth chapter 2. But here's the second thing that we have not dug into yet. And if we don't see this, we... um, We may be tempted to take this idea that God is for us in all of these blessing kind of ways and then we step into relationship with other people and we need to be for other people in the same ways that God is for us. If we don't catch number two here that we have not yet looked at, how we are for people might actually be off. Okay? But here's number two that we haven't seen yet. Right? Number one, God is for us. Number two, God longs to for us. Mm, us. God is for us and he longs to form us. Well, Brian, where do you see the fact that God wants to form us in Ruth chapter 2? And then I'll tell you why that's very important as we get into application. Here's where I see where God wants to form us and how that's also screaming off the pages here in Ruth chapter 2. We'll make it make sense. Go, Ruth chapter 2, verse 6. All right, we're going to get a picture of Ruth here. When Boaz comes back to the field, he sees, oh, who's this young woman out there? He inquires of uh, the guy who's leading his harvest operation, who's that? Here, here's the response. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered Boaz. Here's who she is. She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said to me, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued reaping, doing the work of reaping from early morning until now, except for a short rest. What is Ruth doing here? What's on display here? Well, Ruth is an up early, go get them kind of lady. She's working hard. She's only taking a very minimal rest. She's at the crack of dawn and she's in the fields and she's working. Okay? Now, here's something else that we got to see to make this make sense in its context. The way that our Old Testament is arranged is different than the way the Old Testament books were arranged for the Hebrew people. 
So when Jesus is referencing the Old Testament, he doesn't, he doesn't understand the order of the Old Testament in the same way we do. It was ordered in a different way. Regarding the ordering of the Old Testament, here's how it was ordered as Jesus understood it. The book of Proverbs, right, it's in the scriptures, Old Testament Hebrew Bible, in the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. At the end of the book of Proverbs in chapter 31, there's this picture of what wisdom looks like when it gets fleshed out. And it's, and it's given in the description of a virtuous woman. And what is the virtuous woman doing? She's up at the crack of dawn and she's working late at night. And she's industrious with her hands. She's a go-getter. She's a hard worker. She's diligent. She is wise. She's on task. Okay? That's what Proverbs chapter 31 is. It says, here's what wisdom looks like. It's, uh, It's typified in this virtuous woman. And then right after Proverbs chapter 31 in the Hebrew Bible is the book of Ruth. And the idea is this. You want to know what a Proverbs 31 woman looks like? You want to know what wisdom incarnate looks like? Here's what it looks like. Read the book of Ruth. Here she is, right? Proverbs 31 isn't the first introduction to this wise woman. Now you get a whole book that fleshes out what the wise woman looks like, who she is, and what she does. Ruth is the wise woman that we get to see in Proverbs chapter 31. All right? And then we see more of her in verse 17. Here's Ruth. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, right? She's up early and she's working all the way until evening. Then after she had worked all day up until the evening, then she beat out the grain that she has gleaned, that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So she works all day harvesting. When the sun has gone down, then she's beating the grain away from the stalk to actually separate the grain out, right? Ruth is on the job. Then, right, remember, we already read this back to verse 2, right? Didn't want to miss this. This is how this whole scene of harvesting started. And Ruth the Moabite said to her mother-in-law, wakes up early in the morning, hey, what does Ruth want to do? Hey, Naomi, let me go to the fields and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I will find favor. Ruth is working hard. Ruth has come off of some hard times. All the men in her life have died. She left the country of her origin. She's made a pilgrimage back with her very bitter mother-in-law. And now she finds herself in a new land with nothing. And what does she do? She goes Proverbs 31, right? She is bearing a weight of difficulty in her life. And she is still showing up to her life. She's working hard. Here's what I want us to see. That provision and protection and presence, all of the things that Ruth receives in chapter 2, does not mean that Ruth is immediately and forever delivered from the heaviness of her circumstances, the challenges that she faces, the work that is required of her, and the diligence that she must put Fourth, in the heaviness, in the challenge, in the work, and in the diligence itself, that's where we find Ruth receiving favor. That's the place. So as Boaz for Ruth, clearly, unmistakably, it hops off of the pages of Ruth chapter 2. Boaz is clearly for Ruth. Has Ruth 
been and is she being well formed in her circumstances? Well, that too leaps off of the page in a resounding yes. So here's the, here's the idea, and I want us to catch this, and we're going to parse this out with the remaining time we have. That we can receive God's favor and we can live in challenge. He can be for us and he's forming us. Those two things are not exclusive from one another, right? As soon as Boaz shows up in Ruth's life, he doesn't say, hey, Ruth, what are you doing in the field here? Get yourself in the, in the living room and sit on the couch for the rest of your life. I'm going to alleviate all of your difficult circumstances. That's not what happens here. That's not what God wants to happen here. God is for us and he wants to form us. And they are not opposed to one another. They happen simultaneously. Let me give an example here just to make this make sense, right? Um, suppose, uh, for those of you that are in the sciences, just get past um, some of the specific details and just go with me generally here. Let's say that we had one person and we took that one person from Earth and then we entered them into one year of living on Pluto, Okay. And then we took another person and took them off of Earth and we gave them one year of living on Jupiter, okay? Life on Pluto is very different than life on Jupiter from a gravitational standpoint, right? Pluto and Jupiter have different gravities to them. So here's what I mean by that. If I went to live, I I did the math this week, just trust me here. If I went to live on Pluto, I would weigh about 10 pounds. If I went to live on Jupiter, I would weigh, what's the... Where's my number here? I would weigh 506 pounds. I would have a very different experience on Pluto as a 10-pounder than I would on Jupiter as a 506-pounder. Would I not? Okay? Now, let's say that we're able to take our cell phones with us, and I'm not on social media, but if you send me to Pluto, I'm going to be on social media. Okay? And I'm going to send some, some videos back to Earth of me doing some extraordinary things. First and foremost, we get, we get ourselves a basketball court, Right? What I didn't tell you on Pluto, um, my vertical jump would be 22 feet high. Brian could get up. Again, beyond what he's ever been able to do, right? I, I would be getting high. So here's what I would do. I'd grab a basketball, go to the court, I'd set up my camera, and I would like run and I would jump from the three-point line, and I'd do probably like three somersaults in the air, and then I'd do like a windmill like tomahawk dunk, and I would post that, and y'all would be like, whoa, look at this guy. This guy's amazing. And then from there, I would do like uh, two-finger push-ups like, from a handstand position. I'd just be like pushing myself up. And I'd, I'd send the video back. You'd be like, whoa, this guy is a freak athlete. He's incredible, right? And I'd just be like jumping 20 feet in the air and doing flips. And I'm sending videos back. And I am gaining for myself a following on social media. And everybody knows me as the athlete, amazing. This guy's incredible. One year, I'm just sending videos back. Now, take me, now the other version of me, as that's happening simultaneous, take the other version of me to Jupiter. As soon as I get to Jupiter, I weigh 506 pounds, and immediately I crumple to the earth. Jupiter is a gas giant, but let's pretend it's not. But on Jupiter, I crumple to the ground, and I can't move. I can't lift my hand off the ground. I'm just struggling to get my chin off the ground. No part of me's moving. And for the first couple of months, like I'm sending videos back and it's just me laying on the ground trying to to 
get up off the ground. And everyone looks at that and they're like, wow, this, why is this guy sending videos? There's nothing there. There's nothing about this guy. A few months in, I'm like starting to like get myself like up off the ground and I'm like hobbling around and I'm sending videos back and you're like, oh, this guy's nobody, right? And then finally nine to 12 months later into my year, I'm like walking around and I'm barely functioning as I'm moving around Jupiter carrying this extra 506 pounds, right? Now, after the year's over, we all come back to Earth. Right? The Pluto me comes back to Earth and the Jupiter me comes back to Earth. Right? And everybody, when I get back to Earth, says, Hey, right, Brian, it's NBA dunk contest time. We've seen what you can do. We've watched your videos. You need to come and enter the dunk contest. And so I do. I get off the rocket ship. I get back to Earth. Then I get to the dunk contest. And it's time for me to get up off the bench because it's my dunk time. And I, I can't get up off the bench. Why? Because I've spent a year on Pluto. I haven't ha- my muscles really haven't been working very much. There's been no resistance. There's been no gravity or weighty circumstances to actually cause me to use my muscles in a way that would make them stronger. And so when I come back to Earth, I can't, not only can I not dunk, I can't even stand up off the bench and catch my breath. And everyone says, who's this guy? This guy's a loser. Because I can't even get, I, I can't dunk, I can't get off the bench. Now, the, Ju- the Jupiter version of me comes off, and everyone's like, who's this guy? He's a nobody, right? But as soon as I get off the rocket, I'm shredded. Like, you've, never, you've never seen Brian with these muscles before. Why? Because I spent a year carrying 506 pounds just trying to make it through life. My shoulders are ripped just trying to keep my clavicle from going into the ground, Right? There's some resistance there which will then form me physically in a way that I would never be formed on Pluto. So the Pluto person comes back and they're an athletic nobody. The Jupiter person comes back and they're winning Olympic gold wrestling medals. Why? Because you get formed in Jupiter in ways that you don't get formed in Pluto. And God is about forming people. He is for us. And he wants to form people. They are not exclusive or excluded from one another. So here's what God does. Oh, and just as a side note, sometimes as people, if we live our lives exclusively from birth to death in Pluto-like environments and circumstances, we have a word for that. Not that this happens to everybody, but you are very likely to become over time what we call a spoiled brat. Okay? God doesn't like making spoiled brats. So God is for us, and he is so for us that he invites us regularly and often into challenges, into heaviness, into places where work and diligence is necessary because he's not, he is so for us that he wants to form us. All of that is happening in Ruth chapter 2. If we just take the idea that God is for us, he gives us his presence, his provision, and his protection, we got to be careful that we, just, we believe that that means God is bringing us to Pluto from now and for all of eternity, right? New creation is going to be great. It's Pluto-like, but we're still going to be well-formed. But in, right, in our lives here, God doesn't deliver us to Pluto on the other side of receiving the gift of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? 
It means a million things in a, different, in a million different relationships. I just want to meander around a few examples here from, from our lives and from the scriptures just to help us catch this principle so that we then can have the creativity to extend this to the people around us. How about this? Parents. All right, parents. You, you know that God is for you, and so you want to receive that favor. And then, regarding your kids, you want to be for your kids, right? You, you want to love them. Presence, protection, provision, all the things that come in covenant relationship. But be careful how you apply that. Because if you are simply for them, but don't know that you must also form them, your for activity might actually malform them. Okay, here's an example. And I, I, don't, I don't know any of your circumstances. If this is you, I'm not trying to read your mail. I'm not trying to criticize you. I'm just trying to help us get these principles in our brains and hearts so that we can learn to be creative and apply this in relationships. But I've, right, how often do moms over time turn into short order cooks? Anybody? Right, and here's what it looks like. Right? I'm a mom and I'm for my kids. And so I'm making food and I want to make it good. And I make this awesome dinner or whatever, and I put it in front of my kids, and they turn their nose up, and they say, I don't like this. And mom's like, well, shoot, I just spent all this time making this, and I thought this would be really good, but they don't like it. Well, but I'm for my kids, and I love them, and that means I give them provision, so, well, okay, let's not eat that. And mom goes back in the kitchen and makes something else, makes something different, brings it back. And the kid says, I don't like that. And mom thinks, well, God is for me. God provides for me. He's for me. I'm f- I must be for my kids. All right, back to the kitchen. Let's try it again. And mom's back in the kitchen doing something else and comes back and, I don't like that either, mom. Why don't you have food for me? This is terrible, right? And the mom is just like going frantic, trying to give the kid whatever he wants. And always what it comes back to is like, here's your chicken nuggets. Here's your pizza, right? There's some picky kids that all they eat is just one thing. And then mom just gives it to him, just delivers it to him, delivers it. Why? Because she believes that she must be for them. And she's letting the kid dictate what that for looks like. But be careful. Careful. Because giving them provision in the land of Pluto might actually be malforming them as human beings. Muscles don't grow on Pluto. Strong people are not formed on Pluto. A diverse palate of a child being able to eat lots of different kinds of foods doesn't happen on Pluto. Right? So in the Kunkler household, here's our, I, I don't, I'm not saying that we're doing it right. I'm just saying in a couple different ways, Megan and I have found some wisdom principles that we live out. Here's one of them. We make food, we put it on the table. If the kids eat it, great. If they don't, that's their decision, but there's nothing else. Provision has happened, and we are for them in that provision. We try to make it healthy. We try to make it good as best we can, and we put it right in front of them. If they want to turn their noses up, that's their prerogative. If they want to like say, I don't like this, well, fine. Go outside and make yourself a salad from the yard. I, I, whatever you want to do, you can go do it. You can figure it out. But here's our provision for you. And in that context of here's what you get, and we're for them. We love them. They can choose in or choose out. But here's what we've seen over time. We don't put up with the tantrums. We don't cut the crust off the bread. We don't give them other meals because they don't want to eat what we've made. Here's what we've learned, that over time they have become formed 
into a, a robust eating pattern where whatever we put in front of them, they will eat it. And they're generally thankful. They don't, they don't complain because we've formed them in an environment where they know that the complaining does nothing, so they've learned to just eat what they get, and they like lots and lots of different kinds of food, right? So, so be careful in being for someone that you don't interpret that in the wrong way. Give them whatever they want, when they want it, how they want it, give them. That doesn't help or serve the child, right? How many parents run around frantic trying to please their kids, get them what they want, how they want it, and when they want it, and their heart is in a good place. I'm for my kids, and for them means I'm providing for them. But they misinterpret that, and instead of like this solid place of being formed into contentment and wisdom and receiving what they get and like running with that but they they want to give them everything and they deliver them into the land of pluto where they actually don't develop in terms of contentment and thankfulness and being like good with what they have right in your in, in our desire to be for them by giving them and serving them over and above in the land of pluto we can actually malform them for the rest of their lives like look at look at how the father treats jesus At Jesus' baptism, the Father says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Do not think that Jesus lived the rest of his life in the lap of luxury in Pluto, where there's no resistance. No, the, the same Father that said, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased, will also then say to his Son, Son, it's time to go to the cross. And then Jesus says, is there any other way? It's a heavy environment there. Jesus knows what's coming. There's a burden. There's a weightiness there. It's Jupiter-like. Jesus says, Father, I understand what we're here to do. Is there any other way to do that? And the Father says, no, I'm sorry. There's no other way. And then, and G, and then Jesus, Jesus goes. But then, read read this. This is beyond our pay grade level here. This is beyond our clearance. But Hebrews 5.8, although Jesus was a son of the Father, he learned obedience through what he suffered learned obedience. Jesus never struggled with sin. I mean, he was tempted in every way that we are, but Jesus doesn't have a heart that's like prone to actually do the things that we do. The only way that Jesus learned obedience was through understanding suffering. He didn't like it, but he chose to go into it for the sake of honoring his father. That's how he learned and was formed in a way that Jesus never otherwise could have been. That's what Hebrews 5.8 is saying. He submits to the father and he's formed as the Father invites him into difficult circumstances, even the cross. Isn't that how God treats us? Right? For the, God says, I have called you by name and you are mine. Right? And then he gives us the gift of Jesus. Jesus pouring his life out for us. He takes our death upon himself and he gives us his life, our sin stain erased. It's pure gift. That's purely for us. That is pure favor. There's nothing we do to receive that. But right after he gives us this incredible gift, he doesn't call us into Pluto. He calls us into formation, right? And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, when Jesus calls us, he bids us to come and die. It's formation. He is for us and he forms us. Take up your cross and follow me right god is just put a little a little greater expanded context here on earth like there are people who are experiencing circumstances like like worse than jupiter 
And, and God is like very clear that for those who are getting crushed on the earth, typically that's the poor, that's the orphan, that's the widow, that's the alien. All throughout the Old Testament, especially through the prophets, God pronounces his favor and his love towards these kinds of people who are getting crushed, right? He wants to give them his presence, his provision, and his protection in a unique way. The prophets all declare that again and again, that he is for those who are getting crushed. On the other side, what God also wants to do is he wants to form maybe someone who's prone to being the spoiled brat. Remember the rich young ruler. No one else in the scriptures was invited or asked in discipleship to give away everything to the poor and then come and follow. Only one. Who is it? Well, he's the rich young guy. If he's a rich young guy, maybe he inherited all of that. Maybe he didn't work hard for years like Ruth did in the field, building and amassing wealth. He just inherited it and he's never really had to do much. He's been living a Pluto existence. And so I just want to speculate here that a young and rich guy living on Pluto, what, when Jesus looks at him, Jesus says, this guy needs some gravity. This guy needs some weight. He needs my presence. I'm going to give him provision and I'm going to protect him. I'm going to invite him into a relationship. But the way he's going to be formed, the way he needs to be formed is by giving all of these things away and then following me in a different set of circumstances that are more challenging, more difficult, more weighty. That's, Jesus is so for him that he wants to invite him into that to form him because he's not getting formed necessarily in his young rich because of his unique circumstances. So here's the thing. We must be for one another. God is for us. We should be for one another, but not in ways that hinder their formation because God is about both, right? If you're a parent and you've got an adult kid who's 44 years old living in your basement playing video games and you're giving them food, cutting the crust off their bread, paying all their bills, getting them all their clothes, right? You think, I'm just doing this. I'm just providing for them because God provides for me. I'm for them. Just recognize that. I, hope, I don't think there's anybody here doing that. Just making the hyperbolic statement here, right? If you're a parent and your 44-year-old is still in your basement and you're living and serving them in that way, just know that you're probably not participating in God's formation of them. He's, all, he's about both, being for and forming. Like with our kids, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to close here, um, but just an, an example from how Megan and I treat our kids regarding money, and there are so many ways to do money with your kids. We have friends uh, that give an allowance to their kids, and it works wonderfully for them, but Megan and I, have, we've decided personally that we're not going to give an allowance uh, to our kids simply because they have a pulse, right? Just because you were alive in our family doesn't mean that we just feed, feed you money, Right? In some ways, that can be, in the heart of a, wrong, of a particular child, that can be like, I'm living in Pluto. I just get and I don't have to do anything. So we, we don't give an allowance. On the other hand, we do not see our kids as free labor, where they're out in the fields from sunup to sundown doing all the jobs that we don't want to do. They're not Cinderella's in our family. That would be too Jupiter-like. So we don't want our kids in Pluto. We don't want them living in Jupiter regarding money. So we've tried to find a way that honors Uh, the fact that we are for them and that God wants to form them regarding money. So we provide for them what they need, all the clothes they need, all the food they need, and and they're content with that. They don't really think about or have like materialistic tendencies 
because we, we just give them what they're going to get, and they're, and they're quite happy with it. They've learned to be happy. Now, if they want to make money, then here, here's how we have decided to form them. Um, we, we say to them, you, you can do some variety of work, and you could do that work that serves people, and then people can pay you for the thing that you create. And so we, we'll have conversations with them about, here's an idea, here, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this. And then when you do that work, then you could get paid for doing that. We want to form them into understanding that in this world, when you serve and bless people, well, then there's sometimes in our economy something that comes back. That's how we want to see them shaped. I don't think an allowance does that, but working and receiving money for their work, we think is a formative thing. And then we'll come alongside them as they start in some of these ventures, and we will be absolutely for them. Like, we'll be marketing team, we'll be sales team, we'll help them. Like, there's some ideas that I present to my kids, like a little business venture where I take all the risk if it doesn't work out, and they get, like, the, like all the reward if it does. Because I'm for them. But I want to create an environment where they're also being formed regarding their money thoughts and habits, right? And this, this is just me and Megan. But when our kids start to make some money and amass a little bit, we've got these little investment vehicles. Like we've got a rental property, and, and our kids know that they can take their money, and when they have like a whole percent of the value of that house, they can take their money and buy a percent of that rental house. And every month when rent comes in, they get one, one daughter right now that owns 3% of a house that we own, pretty soon she's going to push me out and own the whole thing because she's taking money she's earning and she's putting it into the house and she's becoming the owner of the house. But every month she's getting money that comes back. Now, am I for her in creating that vehicle? You, you bet I am. But I didn't just give her the money. She earned it. And she's learning in a formative context how to engage with money because it's important and we want to know that we're for you kids and we want to form you regarding how you choose and engage with money for the rest of your life. Does that make sense? God is for us and he forms us. We also must be for one another but not in ways that undermine God's desire to form us. And there's, again, 10,000 other ways that that gets applied. From macro, geopolitical, country, welfare, all sorts of ideas there to how we engage with our kids and everywhere in between. And that's going to be maybe for the Spirit to like provoke us with, God, how would you have me apply this in some of the relationships that you find me in? Band, come on back up. We're going to sing just a little bit more. And I'm going to pray for us as the band comes up. Father, uh, thank you that you are for us and that you just lavish on us incredible gifts, unmerited, unearned, just straight favor given. And, And the chief among those is Jesus and him crucified on our behalf. And we receive that gift. We are thankful for the covering that you give and we know there's nothing that we can do to make us a better candidate to receive that. It's just by faith, and we say, yes, thank you, Jesus. But Father, on the other side, uh, you want to form us into magnificent people, and you will shepherd us even into the valley of the shadow of death, and you will give us your presence, your protection, and your provision there. But in these times, in these places, you will form us into becoming magnificent human beings because you are also for that. 
Help us to receive all that you have for us, to be open and ready to trust you in all things. And Father, show us and tutor us how to live this out in relationship with one another. We need your tutoring to be able to do so. Pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.